0: You know, there was a specific place for many teenagers in the 70s, 80s, 80s, and 90s where they believed their social status was cemented. That place, the mall. Now, as an adolescent teenager in those times, the mall could be a very imposing place. The food court, the shops, the movie theaters, and then who you might see at the mall. Who you might be seen with at the mall. What was your look at the mall? Would your hairspray last in the whole time where you're at the mall? Would you find your friends when you talked about meeting up? Because that was the day before cell phones the thing is, the mall would also keep people up at night. You'd have nightmares about mall experiences. That maybe your friends would see you with your parents at the mall. That you might run into that boy or girl that you like at the mall. I mean, the mall was the height of social engagement. And it's where you found yourself on the social strata of how you were at the mall. Well, it's hard not to laugh at that nowadays, the weight that we put on it in the teenage years. Maybe some of you still hang out at the mall, especially with the current state of the mall in America. At the height in the 80s, there were 2,500 malls in the United States. Now there are only 700. And sociologists say there will only be 100 left in the next 10 years. The Valley Fair Mall, who some of you know, they're Appletonians, one of the first malls in America, there's nothing left. It's gone. It no longer exists. So how could something so imposing, so important, that took up so much of the mental energy in our lives just be gone? What we're going to find today is the quick rise and fall of things should give us great pause, that kingdoms made by human hands rise and fall, but the things of God are everlasting. Today, we're going to see kings and a people wrapped up in the awe of a kingdom, but through a great revelation, they will see that earthly kingdoms made by earthly hands come and go, but there is a kingdom that is eternal. And this passage should raise some questions for us this morning that I hope you would ponder. What places, what possessions, what political ongoings, what things of the world do we give too much credence to, and how does God's eternal kingdom give us true credence? freedom. Let's look together, shall we? We're in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 31 through 35. It's a narrative, and it divides very nicely into three parts. So I'm going to take it chunk by chunk. So let's start here in verses 31 through 35. Please pay attention to God's word. You saw, O king... And behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We are in the book of Daniel this fall, and we'll go all the way there until the new year. And here we see that the people of Israel have been brought in exile 500 miles away from Jerusalem to Babylon, where Babylon has conquered Israel, taken its best and brightest, and taken them into Babylonian captivity. And the camera is now focused on four teenagers swept into this Babylonian exile, into the palace, and into the political intrigue of the city. The great king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a bad dream, and he wants someone to both tell him what the dream was and the interpretation. And if they do not, all his wise men and counselors, they shall all be executed, and their houses all destroyed. And that includes Daniel and his friends, these four teenagers. Well, Daniel hears of this, and he says, I will answer his request. And he and his friends pray, and then he hears from the Lord. The Lord reveals what the dream is and in the interpretation to Daniel. And Daniel thanks the Lord, as we saw last week. And he talks about how great God is a God that sets up kings and deposes them, that gives all wisdom and reveals dreams. So here we've taken it in three parts, this chapter two. And now we're at the latter part of chapter two, the resolution. And it's in three sections. The dream, the interpretation, and then the epilogue. What happens to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar after this? Well, here we see the dream is now, it's been what you've been waiting for. It is revealed. And it's a dream about this image of great might and exceeding brightness. You have to remember that King Nebuchadnezzar, he is very, very powerful A general that worked under his father, who just died a few years earlier, that took out Assyria, this great nation that people thought would never fall, takes them out, pushes back Egypt, takes over other nations, and then takes the best and brightest of those nations and brings them into his court to serve him. But we see that in this dream, in the revealing of the dream, that the details are not just given about the dream and the image, but also we see that God is working in Nebuchadnezzar and his life. You have to realize this great king Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by a dream that God gave to him. And he is frightened, as it says here in this passage, very interesting. It doesn't just tell what the dream is. It also tells that this image was frightening to Nebuchadnezzar. See, God is showing that he knows the thoughts of kings, no matter how great they are, and he answers their problems. Even kings that enslaved God's people. There is no problem big enough that God does not know how it affects his creation. people. God knows what troubles Nebuchadnezzar, and through a dream, he gets his attention and figures out the troubles and thoughts of his mind. Well, the image we can gather is a statue, mighty statue, and we see that it is of a person, This is not a foreign concept of that time that nations in that time would make statues of their kings or their gods to show their power and their strength. And this is what happens here is this statue of this person. And we see, again, it's probably maybe not foreign to us today. Cultures still do that. I think about the Statue of Unity. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's a statue that is 600 feet high In India. It's of Prime Minister Patel, a former Prime Minister of India. It's double the size of the Statue of Liberty. So still, statues have a mighty presence and to exert the power of humans and people. We see that this statue is made of gold and silver and bronze and iron, meaning it's made of human hands, these precious metals. But then we see a non-precious metal comes into the image, a stone not made of human hands, and it breaks this statue apart. And then the imagery is very vivid, like this chaff, you know, separating um, the outside of wheat, how it would blow away on a threshing floor. That is what happens to the statue that was mighty and great. It breaks apart, it is blown away, and there is no trace of it even left. And then what comes instead, that stone that broke it apart, it becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. In 2019, in northern Italy, there was a vineyard. And uh, this uh, family that was planting the vineyard had dug down deep. And as they dug down, dug down about 10, 15 feet, they found something amazing. A mosaic tile floor. One that if you even saw today, you'd think it'd be the most opulent houses in America. 10 to 15 feet deep. Archaeologists came and dug and did it, and what they found is that what used to be there, where the vineyard was, was this extraordinary villa that was in the Roman Empire during the 3rd century. And after the collapse of the Roman Empire, this villa was destroyed, you know, dirt and time just covered over it, so there was no evidence of it whatsoever for hundreds and hundreds of years, buried under dirt. Think about the parties that used to be there, the opulence, the power, the people that lived there in the height of the Roman Empire, all to be forgotten. Sometimes we get glimpses of this even in the Midwest. Factories, towns, cities, Houses that used to be powerful and great, now only to be abandoned and nothing left in them. Things come and things go. But here's the thing, we don't live in that time, we live today. And we often get caught up in our own things of great importance or things that are imposing to us. Buildings, environments, families, settings, that we don't see how they come and they go. It's football season, right? In the fall. And a lot of us go to football games on Friday nights at high schools. Think about going to Cacona or Kimberly or Appleton North or wherever it might be. And there are some of these Football programs that are so powerful in Wisconsin, they have grand stadiums and their trophies and their fans, and we get caught up into it in the Friday night lights and say, this is what it's all about. This is what we have to become. This is how we show that we are powerful and great. If I could only be like the Kimberly football team or whatever it might be, or Nina, I don't want to say anyone bad, right? Or maybe a business trip you go on where you go to the headquarters of your business. Maybe it's a sky rise that overlooks the city, and you see the opulence of the boardroom or what people wear, and it's just so imposing. You think, this is what matters, this grand thing. Maybe you go to someone's house or their lake house. And you see what they have built and the time that they've spent on decorating in the right ways. And that can be imposing. You think, this is where glory dwells. This is arrival. Hear what this story is telling us. These grand things made of human hands, they will blow away like chaff. And they will not even be remembered. See, I think this is what frightens Nebuchadnezzar. His grand empire. Trying to hold on to it. Thinking this is what matters. I want to make sure it's okay. And this is the dream that God reveals to him. I often think of the story of Harold Abrams. The true to life. 100-meter runner in Great Britain in the early 20th century. It's a movie made about him and Eric Little. Chariots of Fire won Best Picture in 1980. And it kind of compares and contrasts these two men. But in the movie, it talks about how Harold Abrams is at the 1924 Paris Olympics, right, seeking after gold and silver or bronze. And he's lost the 200 and here he's with a friend and getting massaged before he's going to run the 100-meter dash. And he says to his friend this, In one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and I will look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole life existence. Comes and it goes. See, Daniel is writing to the exiles that have come out of Babylon. Now they are back in Israel, and they are surrounded by nations around them. Right. Tiny Israel, are we going to make it? Or those that have been sent to other nations during the diaspora. And they're wondering, and being by these other nations, how big they are, how grand they are. Will we be able to live up to them? What do we have to be to be like them? The gold or silver or things by human hands. And here God is revealing to them as much as he's revealing to Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom is the one that lasts and those will go away. Do you have troubling dreams like this? Maybe it's not a dream. Maybe it's when you're awake. What is my retirement going to look like? Do I have what I need? What will my legacy be? Will I be memorialized on a plaque? How will my kids turn out? Will they carry on the family name? The weight of impact. The weight of having significance. The weight of living by these kingdoms. It keeps us up. Striving for our empires. Just like it did to Nebuchadnezzar? Will they one day, which they all will be, smashed against something that is eternal? Are we building that empire, seeking that empire? Or will we build on the solid rock, the foundation that will not end? Let's hear what the interpretation is. Verses 36 through 45. This is the dream now we will tell to the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage. But they will not be held together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king which shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Well, we might be taken aback at first... That here Daniel refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings, the ruler over the beasts of the field. say, how dare you give such a title to a human king? I just want to say a few notes about this. One, this probably was Nebuchadnezzar's official title, king of kings, and that's how you would address him. Also, you see Daniel's boldness. Here, he refers to his own God, Yahweh, not the Babylonian gods. The God of heaven has given all these things to Nebuchadnezzar. And then also, you see, ruler over the beasts of the field. We'll see as we get later on talking about Nebuchadnezzar how ironic that will be in what happens to him. And I love the ending of the verses, verse 45. It says, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. this dream, the dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. We remember how Nebuchadnezzar said to all his wise men, This is the rule, this is the law. You will die if it's not interpreted. Here God brings it right back to Nebuchadnezzar saying, What I say is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Well, here's the interpretation that Daniel gives. He says that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar is like this gold, this head. And then these more inferior things come after the silver and the bronze and the iron. Much ink has been spilled about what these kingdoms are. Some would argue it's Antichus, a Syrian king that persecuted the Jews in the second century. Some would say it's referring to the Roman Empire. Some would re- say it's referring to kingdoms that are existent today. Again, much time has been spent on this, thinking about what this could possibly be. We're going to get to it a little bit later. We're going to talk about um, this when we get to the apocalyptic part from uh, on chapter 7 later. But I just want to briefly go over classically in church history. It's been the gold is Babylon. The silver is Persia, the nation that we'll see that comes right afterwards, even in the book of Daniel. The bronze, the Greek empire, the iron and clay, the Roman empire. Now again, let's not lose the forest for the trees. The major thing that's trying to be communicated here is that there are two types of kingdoms. These kingdoms that the statue represents made of human hands. They are temporary. They are overcome by other kingdoms, and one day they will just blow away. And then there's the kingdom of God, not made by human hands, eternal, unconquerable, and is not left to any other person. It is God's that he will reign. Well, it seems to fit nicely as you talk about the stone, I think, to think about it as Babylon, Persia, Greek and the Roman Empire, especially as you see how Jesus arrives on the scene 600 years later. This rock language is used throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah, it says the rock is the offense to others, but a sanctuary to some. Also in Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. So you see this language is used, and then Luke, in the Gospels, he borrows from again the language in Isaiah, the language in the Psalms, the language here in Daniel, as he talks about Jesus. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See the kingdoms of man rejected the son of god the one not cut from human hands he was despised and rejected not of these precious metals but what might say just a stone crucified by the roman empire but then through the resurrection he turned an empire upside down that this stone really became a mountain, that the Roman Empire collapsed, but the spread of Christianity continued. The nations came and went, but the gates of hell could not prevail against Christ and his church. Some of us are so discouraged about current politics, what's going on in our country, the rise of secularism, the uncertainty of our future, But hopefully Daniel gives us some perspective. In 1900, twice as many Christians lived in America and Europe to the rest of the world. Today, there are more Christians in Africa than in any other continent. In 2050, they say there will be 1.3 billion Christians in Africa. 700 million in Latin America, 600 million in Asia. That is triple the amount of Christians in North America and Europe combined. We are so myopic, aren't we, as Americans? (laughs) It all revolves around us and our kingdom in the West. The gospel is on the move. And even if it passes by us, guess what? His mountain will not be conquered. His church will continue on. And the nations that actually rely on things that are not of the world but rely on His strength, they show us up. They show us what truly power comes from. But the God of the universe that sustains them. Praise be the Lord that He goes to the nations and He is on the move in these places. There's a great advantage for all of us on this side of Daniel and the cross, that we can see Christ in his kingdoms, his mountain that has filled the world and shown his strength through 2,000 years. I hope it can give many of you pause to the validity of this message, the reliability of the Bible, that it is able to predict the future, What it says comes true. But let's not just pause there. Let's not celebrate how victorious we are as Christians. But instead, let's celebrate how Christianity does it. Christianity does it by taking the weak, the least, to show God's power. He lifts the weak and he humbles the proud. Let's see that verses 46 through 49. Last section will be done. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, and incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Here is this great reversal from the beginning of the story, now here to the end. The king who is great in power says he's going to execute all these wise men. He was named after a Babylonian god of wisdom. Now he is humbled. And what does he do? He lifts up Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews that he's enslaved, saying he is the god of gods, the lord of kings. And then God elevates a teenager in political exile, sentenced to death, to be the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. This is the great reversal of the good news of God. He lifts the humble and he humbles the proud. The last shall be first and the first first shall be last. He takes the weak to show that he is the one in power. You know, it's very, very hard for us as we've lived in this kind of Christian thinking for 2,000 years to see that's the ethos that is in our culture. A protection of every human life, of the vulnerable. This comes from this Christian ideal. We've talked about it multiple times. David has, and I have. Tom Holland, an historian that really wanted to elevate the Roman Empire and how great it was and how we need to get back to these Roman ideals. But instead, when he looked back at the Roman Empire, he realized how atrocious it was. That slavery was the norm. Sexual exploitation was the norm. Infanticide was rampant throughout Rome. And then what happened? Christianity came along. Christianity taught a different worldview that valued the vulnerable, that everyone is made in God's image, and the church grew through the poor. It also happened, the first sexual revolution happened with the church, that sex simply wasn't for pleasure, but it happened in committed covenant relationships. It reduced sexual exploitation and the elimination of unwanted children. And that's why women played such a huge part in the early church, because they found protection there. Holland goes on to say this, that many times we think the idea of the cross and the crucifixion, that was just imagery and pictures all over the place that we elevated this humility of Jesus being uh, murdered and killed Roman-style execution-wise. How humiliating that was. It took 500 years after Christ's death and resurrection for the crucifixion to be depicted artistically because how humiliating it was. What a sign of weakness it was that Christians tried to downplay that as much as possible because it was such a humiliating picture to be seen. See, that is what we are saying the gospel is. The origin of these values, caring for the least and the lost. It's a kingdom built on the weak, showing God's power, not through the solicitation of power of our kingdoms, but a king that gave his life for us and the ones he created. I want to drive this home And again, I'm speaking to my own heart. It's not easy to follow that kingdom. A kingdom of humility, a kingdom of care, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of sacrifice. We think the kingdoms of gold and silver and iron are so attractive that we just get wrapped up into them. And we're frightened by them. And in our fear, we try to live by them. And we say, we need to follow this to get ahead. I need to be at this level at this point in time. I need to be talking to these people. I need to have this much money. I need to be around these kind of people or this kind of job to really make it in this life. And God says, no, don't do it. I have a different story. My son has come that has been rejected by the world, but he will be the cornerstone and he has established a kingdom that will be everlasting. So will our foundation be on this rock? are we building it on gold and silver and bronze, things that one day will be crushed by the rock of Christ? Here is the stone that we rejected that has become the cornerstone. Take it into your life. That his kingdom would grow and grow in you. That when you see these other kingdoms that will fade away, you will know how you are to live. That you will live for love of neighbor, for sacrifice of your time, for your care for things that will last forever. I hadn't written this, so I'm going to share this story. You know, my daughter goes to Appleton West. And I go to the games, the West football games, and the volleyball games. And I see the other schools, right, North and Nina and Kimberly. I'm not bashing them. And I see the community that I live in people that I live around out West. And in my heart, I say, I want to be like Appleton North, and I want to win. I want to be like Nina, and I want to be powerful and win and look good. And I look around my neighbors that are Appleton West, single parents, kids that are suffering and in need. And all of my heart and my flesh says, I don't want to spend time there. I want to spend time that I look powerful and good. And God can fix my heart. And He says, Love them, care for them, give up your time for others, give up your ego and your pride. It's not simply about your kid's success, but showing them the kingdom of God that will last forever. It's better than an ACT score or Val Victorian or what college they go to. But they would sacrifice their love for others. That is a kingdom that will last forever.